Good morning again. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you listening online, good morning to you also. And before I begin, I just want to say uh, when Christians are in the assembly clapping together, from hell's perspective, it sounds like troops on the move. And uh, that's a good thing. Well, this morning's message is entitled The Solution, and it will be Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 5. And if you're home, watching online, and you can, stand for the reading of God's Word with us, please. Would you stand, please? Sorry, it was a little ambiguous, but we'll be all right. If I could find Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, we'll be really fine. Verse 21. Now, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell down at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her, that she may be healed. And she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years, and had suffered many things from the physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word, That was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. And then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Taliath Akumi, which is translated little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. And he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given her to eat. Please be seated. Well, let's just go on to chapter 6. I mean, this was just getting into this. So we see Jesus in the midst again. 
of human dread. It started with the storm in chapter 4, then the maniac of Gadara in the beginning of chapter 5, and now we have this diseased woman who interferes with Christ en route to dealing with a child near death. Uh, None of these, the demons, the storm, the death, the disease, none of them could defeat Christ. He defeated them all. And that really is the teaching of the New Testament about Jesus Christ. It's not, well, he's going to do this to you too. Anytime you get sick, anytime you face dread, anything you come up against, he's just going to come in and he's going to lay his hands on it and it's going to be all better for you. Ultimately, he will, and we believe that. We know that by faith. He has a different perspective on everything until we find out what his perspective is. Ours is different, too. And our role, is, one of them, is to line up with the, the will and the belief, well, not the belief, but the will and the mind of God, to be like Christ. And so we pray, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. We pray, uh, he must increase, I must decrease. All of these are uh, teachings from the scripture to us on how to live as believers of God by faith. We have two contrasts here in this chapter. The remaining verses of this chapter, verses 21 through 43. We have this humble outcast by reason of her disease. This particular disease would have made her an outcast, would have blocked her from coming to the sanctuary, to temple worship at Jerusalem. She would have been treated like a leper in many ways. Then we have the honored overseer of the synagogue. By reason of his position, he is honored. So one of shame and one of honor. We also have a woman with 12 years of misery. And then we have the father with 12 years of joy in this child. These contrasts, they're intentional. There are lessons here for us to receive. There's no way I'm going to extract all of them. I don't even know all of them. But I'm not going to tell you that. (laughs) But I know some of them. I know hopefully enough of them. Not because of anything in me, but because the Spirit of God does this for us, for his people. Looking at verse 21 again, now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. Well, he didn't stay where he was unwanted, was not welcomed in Gadara where he had cast the demons out of the maniac and the other one with him. He's practicing what he preached. There in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under feet, their feet, and turn and tear you in pieces. And so rather than cast pearl of the sweet word of God, the valuable word of God, before these who are behaving like pigs, Christ said, I'm going back to Capernaum. And that apparently is where he is now landed, by his lakeside base there in Capernaum. They would have seen the flotilla approaching because, as we recall from his uh, departure from Capernaum to, to go to Gadara, there were these little boats following him. Well, they're following him back. And so they see them coming from the lake, and that means the word starts to stir up the village, and everybody's coming to the shore to, to, see, to meet Jesus on his return. Verse 22, And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he had 
And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her that she may be healed, and she will live. Here is the father in extreme or deep distress. Luke mentions that this was his only daughter. There was nowhere else to turn. There was nowhere else to go. No one could possibly do any more for this child. Jesus was his last hope. And he believed that, the father did. And it took quite a bit for this ruler of the synagogue to approach this nonconformist rabbi. That's how he was viewed by those who had the, the, the power over the people through their religion. He knew Jesus could heal her. What he did not know is that Jesus could raise her from the dead. And that's what he's going to find out. So are others too. There are so many things we know about Jesus Christ. And there are so many more things we don't know. And they're to our benefit. They await us. Whatever you're dealing with right now. Or whatever you might deal with. Maybe 50 years from now or more. What is it going to matter 200 years from now? What will matter most to you 200 years from now is what you thought about Jesus Christ at this moment or before you leave this world. That's perspective. It's not enough to stop the hurt, but it is enough to get the victory. You know, we can be set back. We're never defeated as Christians. Paul said, you know, we are... Hard-pressed, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Yeah, I'm confused. I don't know what God is doing. It's part of the Christian life to not like some of the things that God is doing. Peter, at Caesarea Philippi. Far be it from you, Lord. Talk about the cross. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Well, when Jesus hacked off the ear of Malchus, it's because... Peter, when Peter hacked off the ear of Malchus, it's because Peter did not like what God was doing at the moment. He took matters into his own hands. And what did he do? He butchered the moment. And he caused the Lord to have to patch up his dirty work. We have to learn these lessons in life. We don't always like what God is doing. He knows that. But we do have to adhere to what God is doing. We abide with Christ, and Christ abides with us. We're supposed to be made out of tougher stuff. And the flesh, of course, doesn't like that. The flesh wants us to have its way, even if it's just complaining, which I have mastered, incidentally. I hold a black belt in complaining. Well, anyway... Jairus would find this out, but before he got there, he was going to suffer. His heart was going to break. Verse 24, so Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Where are these multitudes today? Well, to some degree, they're still around. There are those that throng Jesus, interested only in the thrills and what they could get from him. There are those that like to throw out his name, to pretend to be so devout and really aren't. I mean, how many uh, Christian concerts have attendees that really aren't interested in obedience and adherence and holiness? They just want to, you know, sing the songs and feel good about themselves. Although there are in those numbers those who are sincere also. 
and we think about something like that, and we have to say to ourselves, where am I? What team am I on? Am I on the team that has on their jersey sincere, or am I on the team that is just carnal? I liked uh, years ago playing basketball with uh, in the church that I come out of in New York, and uh, we were playing a basketball, and one of the guys on my team said, okay, our team name is the Spirit, your team is the Flesh. And I thought that was very appropriate for my team. <laughs> we do appreciate that. Well, in bringing Jesus to his home for help, there was interference, and it's big. And this is a big part of this lesson for us. And the interference doesn't come from Satan. Not directly. Indirectly, of course, Satan is the one that caused humanity to stumble and fall flat on its face into sin. But here, it's not Satan who is interfering with Christ coming to the rescue of this man's beloved daughter. It is another soul in distress. And it would place... Intense pressure on the father, Jairus, by name. His patience, his very soul. He's got to be sitting there saying, come on, as Jesus is going to be interacting with this woman. Yet, she, who the one interfering, she's desperate too. Verse 25, now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. Now we'll have to pause there. Under the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, her affliction rendered her untouchable. If you were to have contact with her, if she were to brush up against you, if her garment touched your garment, you were ceremonially unclean. And you could not go down to the temple or up to the temple in Jerusalem and offer sacrifice. You probably were not allowed into the synagogue. And, and, and at the dining, there were just many things you just were blocked from because of this. Now, you would be ceremonially unclean for only a short period of time, but still, that would be a time you would not want that on you. A great stigma was attached to her condition. She had to live with this junk for 12 years, going on her second decade. Leviticus 15, speaking of this condition, says, Whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. <clears throat> and the idea, part of that is, I don't want to be unclean at all. And so, she would have people dodge her. Her disease not only defiled her, but made a disaster of her life. When everybody else was having fun, she was suffering. This cloud just stayed over, atop of her. It cut her off from the society she lived in, from the sanctuary that she worshipped. For 12 years... Twelve years of ungranted prayer. Twelve years of, Lord, can you heal me? Nope. No answer. Twelve years of questions not answered by God. Why, Lord? Why? Silence. Twelve years of gloom. Almost, as I said, a leper's life. How cheated she must have felt as she watched other women her age not have this burden in their lives. Other women with their husbands, with their children, with their health, not her. We get the point. Verse 26, And had suffered many things from the physician. She had spent all that she had and was no better, 
rather grew worse. Poor thing, she's exhausted. She's now broke. It's a pitiful condition. Yet, yet, she does not seem to have come to the place where she's given up. She's still looking for the solution, but this time it's in Christ, whom she's heard so much about. She probably knew people that he had healed. But there were others that were worse off than her. There always is. John's Gospel, chapter 5, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. Some of you aren't even 30 years, 38 years old yet. 38 years, that man had to deal with his situation until Christ came along and changed things. Then there are other people living in surrounding lands that just went to their graves this way. Keeps it in perspective for us that God has a different view and his view is right. And it is important that we line up with that and stay there. That we abide, adhere. And faith does that. Luke speaks of another one in Luke chapter 13. Behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. She could not even look up to the sky. Christ sees them all. Here she is for 12 years, not alone. That brings some comfort, but not relief enough. She suffered embarrassment, disappointment, financial ruin, playing all that she had. How many times did the doctor say, go try this? Okay, that didn't work. Okay, no, try this. Okay, don't eat that. Okay, eat this. She went through that. Until finally they would have nothing to do with her because they had no solution. They could probably give a name to her condition, but they could not cure her. They collected her fees and gave up. Not that they were shysters. Some of them may have been. Some may have been very genuine. But in spite of this, she was worse off. Verse 27 And when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Now, just entering this midway, there are those who over the centuries have come to know Christ and have had worse conditions than this. And they read this story and still they get stronger in their faith. Understanding that, okay, Jesus healed her, but he healed her, but that's not his way with me. I have to find out what he's going to do with me. And that has been very successful in the causes and interests of the king. And let's not think for one moment that whatever you endure is in vain if you belong to Jesus Christ. It will seem in vain many times, pointless. It will make you angry and upset, hurt, feel cheated, not want to pray, not want to read, not want to attend church, not want to love. That's the war. You hear people talk about prayer warriors. Warriors die on the battlefield, incidentally. So, we we look at this and we say, well, you know, I'm in a position here where I am forced to make a choice. I'm going to full out trust Christ or not. I choose to follow him. And so many others have also. And I know many of you, if not all of you here, do too. So we picture her, frail, alone, desperate, maneuvering through the throng, through the multitude, through the crowd. All the healthy people around her, and she's pushing through. She's not supposed to touch any of these people. She can't help it. She's willing to sacrifice whatever penalty that may bring to get cured. Secretly, she's on a mission of hope. 
And nobody knows it but her. Of course, the Lord. It says, and touched his garment. The Greek word for touch really is to grasp, not to just to touch it like that. Mark will explain what went into this action in a moment. But being unclean, as I mentioned, she wasn't supposed to even touch his garment. The rabbis would say that that defiled her and him, and they would have been right, ceremonially speaking. Haggai chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, Haggai uses this uh, doctrine of corruption uh, to make a great point against the people who were at that time living pretty nicely while the temple lied in ruins. God's house was in shambles, but they were doing pretty good, and that's the prophet Haggai staring up the nation to do something about the place that they were to worship. But the laws of contamination are this, Paul writes to the Corinthians, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. This is big. This is big because as our Christians, many of us get older, we are corrupted by the junk we read. Be careful. Don't think because some, you know, just a book has a nice cover and everybody's loving it that it's right. What is in that book? Does it line up with Scripture? Who is the author? Does that author believe in the infallibility of God's Word? Or are they one of those liberal authors that, well, some of it we believe, some of it we don't. And for you younger ones, evil company corrupts morals, good habits. It ruins you. It contaminates you. You have a friend that is not interested in Christ but you feel like you've got to be their friend, listen, you invite them to church. If they don't want to come, find another friend. Don't be the dumb guy on the block. It's your choice. It's up to you. You may get persecuted for it. Well, I don't want to be persecuted any more than you do. But uh, it's just the way it is. So when Paul says, don't be suckered, oh, did I say it that way? That's exactly what he's saying. Satan is seducing you. You might think this is harmless, but Satan knows it is harmful. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. God can get you better friends. You might go for a while without some, but he'll get you better ones. You don't need to be around those who represent the evil company. And evil corrupts at a faster rate than righteousness purifies. So if you say, well, I'm going to hang around this person until they get saved, you may find out they have corrupted you to now you need to get saved. You know, this is not a game. He's a very real devil, and he does not take prisoners to just take them. He takes them to destroy them. Catching cleanliness, catching holiness, only comes from God. You catch that from him. You get that from him. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 7. Pardon me, I should have had that flagged here. Isaiah 6. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Of course, that was the servant of the Lord in Isaiah's vision touching the lips of the prophet at the command of God. In Mark chapter 1, verse 41, pardon me, I should have had this flagged. Do you believe in deja vu? Do you believe in deja vu? (laughs) 
Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. It is the touch of God that cleanses us. We don't rub up against sinners and get clean. It is God that does it every time. And verse 28 now, for she said, now Mark's giving us the background, her reasoning. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Matthew says that she said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. Now, of course, when we think of a hem, we think of the bottom of the you know, trousers or the, the bottom of the dress. But that is not at all the idea with, uh, with their garb, the wardrobe of, of that day. Uh, this would have been the garment that he would have wrapped and folded and uh, a part of the hem would have been pushed over the back of his shoulder in between his shoulder blades and there with the tassel hang right there. And that is what she is going to grab, come behind him and grab hold of this. And so uh, uh, this, uh, well, let's pick up Matthew chapter 9. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. And there is the explanation. The hem was a big deal with the Jews in those days. It is to this day, too, with the, when they wear their prayer aprons um, that you may have, have seen with the tassels and the blue stripes. Numbers chapter 15, verse 38, Speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And uh, that is uh, significant to what is going on. We could take a lot of time going through this, but I think you get the picture. She believed that this was going to be a point of contact with him that would create or heal her. Well, you know, the day did come where his clothes did radiate. Matthew 17, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Pretty intense. Everything that was touching him reflected or radiated his glory. Uh, There's no one like Jesus Christ. It never was, never will be. He's God, the Son. He is God Almighty, the Son. He lacks no attribute. All that the Father has, all that the Holy Spirit has, they all have. There's no break. They present themselves in separate roles in dealing with us. But the unity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is so, it is, so joined together There's nothing that creates a wedge. You know, with a little wedge, you can lift tons. You can take a little steel wedge and you can can just lift up so much stuff. You can't with God. Not, Not like that. Verse 29. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of affliction. Instant result. Now, remember, meanwhile, Jairus is like, oh, you know, she just, he thinks he's just moving along, but the delay is coming. It's not coming yet, but it's coming. This word here, affliction, at the bottom of verse 29, in the Greek means to scourge or whipping. Luke uses it both ways, uh, as an affliction and also as a whipping. Paul picks it up and he uses it as uh, a whipping, and, and this is what it, the the Spirit is saying, this woman was scourged by this condition. She was whipped. But there's more to the story with Christ in her. Verse 30, 
And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? He knew at once that some evil had just been defeated. He knew it. He knew that a hand of faith in need touched him. This is important because Mark and Matthew and Luke, who all tell the story, make it clear that the crowd was shoving and pushing and touching him. And he also knew knew who it was. But he, he also understood the value of public confession. He is going to extract that from this woman for her own good. This healing was not something to be concealed. Your salvation is not something to conceal. Why are you hiding that you're a Christian? Well, I have a concealed carry permit. No, you don't. There's no such thing as a permit to conceal your faith. You're permitted to broadcast it, to let your light shine. A city set on a hill. You can't hide it. It's right there. You ever travel to some places in, well, a lot of places in the world, for me, uh, uh, Villa France, you could see the uh, all the villas up on the hill that the ship pulls into the little harbor. You see all these, you can't hide it. Day or night, it's there. And the Christian testimony is to be that way. And uh, she was not going to be permitted to exchange the shame of her condition for the shame of concealing her faith. She was going to be given the opportunity to come out and out loud. Look, uh, the the world has no problem broadcasting their sin. They can't make a a, a movie without a curse word in it. Oh, I've got to put one in there. It's going to make the movie so much better. I'm kind of ranting, aren't I? Because it's so, not only it's, it's dumb, and that should be enough, but it's disappointing very much. Anyway. The only person in that crowd that knew who touched him and why was Christ. And he is now saying, who touched me? And she has got her, she must have froze right there. Her heart is pounding. You can hear who it is. <laughs> is that the hell? Oh, it's you, lady. I can hear it. She feels like she stole something and got caught. Verse 31, but his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? See, this is, this is astonished unbelief. It, it, this is, you're kidding us, right? Everybody pushing and shoving because they missed the meaning. They missed the meaning that he makes a distinction between what type of touch comes in contact with him. He makes a distinction from those who are curious versus those who are serious. And he's doing it right now. He could tell the crush of the crowd versus contact with a soul driven by distress. And it was very important to him. In fact, it was so important that he was not going to let it pass. And he was going to let it interrupt his forward motion to go heal the daughter of Jairus. Everyone at this moment in the crowd was under pressure in some form. The crowd was eager to get a look at him, to brush up against him, to see some miracle, something he'd do, something he would say. The disciples were under pressure to keep him from being crushed. The woman with the distress in her life was got arrived there under pressure and now is even more trying to push her way through the crowd just to get... How did she do that? How did she make it through those people? 
You ever been to a, you know, a big concert or something? You're trying to get through and it's just people blocking you every way? Excuse me, pardon me. How long did this go on? And in the midst of it all, the only one without pressure, Jesus Christ, asked a question that sounded unrealistic, even selfish. Who touched me? Again, I think I've referenced, you know, riding on a New York City subway in rush hour. And, you, you know, you're going to be smashed into people. There's, there's no way around it. And to say, who touched me? It was just, you know, it was fighting words. It's not realistic. And that's what the disciples are saying, but they didn't get it yet. They didn't understand that love was in the power of Christ that went out from him. He was fully aware. He felt love go out of him into another. The same way electricity goes through, you know, a, a copper wire. That current flying through. He discerns a touch on him, on his robe. Not overlooked. He's not careless about this. In fact, in this little section of Mark, in verses 27, 28, 30, 31... We read, she touched his garment, she touched his garment. Who touched my garment? Who touched me? The disciples said that. You say, who touched you? Really, she touched his garment. Close enough. That was him. All contact with him is instantly noticed to this very day. We think our prayers aren't heard because he doesn't respond, he doesn't answer. I even write out in my prayers sometimes, why am I writing this, Lord? You're not going to answer my question. Why am I asking it? But I am compelled. I'm built that way. I have a, the ability to reason. And part of reasoning involves inquiry. And part of worship involves inquiry to God. And I know he doesn't rebuke me for it. He doesn't have to answer me either. He knows that. And that's an agreement we have with him, is it not? On my part, I will do what I'm told, Lord. On your part, you will do what you want. That's our agreement. You be God, and I will not try to be God. Verse 32, and he looked around to see her who had done this thing. Oh, man, those eyes sweeping the crowd. Sweeping. He stops. Everything stops. The blessings from God, they're to, they, they're to be brought to light. When he delivered the maniac... Verse 19, however, Jesus did not permit him to go with him, that is, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. There are times when Jesus had to suppress this or made attempts to because of the reaction of people getting out. You know, we read in one spot, Jesus said, don't. Don't, don't tell anybody that. And the man went around telling everybody, and Jesus couldn't even minister anymore. You know, it just it was, it wasn't good. But in this case, again, she is not free to conceal what Christ has done for her. Being a secret disciple of Christ is the same thing as being a weaker disciple of Christ. Now, there are exceptions. There are times of heavy persecution where the church moves underground because the mission is still to save souls. And when if we all just recklessly get ourselves killed, there's no one left to save souls. But as a rule, if your motivation is cowardice, you're afraid what people are going to say, there's something you have a, you have a conversation with the Lord now about that. 
You tell them right out, I'm afraid. I'm afraid you're going to laugh at me, ridicule me, mock me. What can I do? So that he can say, well, there's not much you can do other than coming to me and telling me, and I can do something on your behalf. And so she goes, this poor little thing, she goes, the ride that she has this day, she goes through, if I could just touch him, I'll be healed. And she's not sure if she can touch him. She finally touches him. She gets healed. And then he calls her out, the drama of it all, in front of everybody. Who touched me? A terrifying moment for her. And she sees his eyes moving through the crowd. But the woman, verse 33, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. You can hold it back. She just knew I'm busted. And she's trembling. She's fearing and trembling. The Lord's instant reaction to her healing. She paused and then she comes forward. Was she afraid because she got a blessing without permission? Was she afraid because everybody would have known that she had defiled everybody on the way to the healing? We're not told. But she comes and she falls down before him. And she tells the whole truth. Verse 34. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. How many times do we want to hear him say that? And he does not. And how many times, how many times does Christ say, I'm not going to heal you. And the one who asked to be healed and their loved ones say, okay, Lord, your will, not ours. And hell is enraged because of it. Because there is a Christian still serving, still believing, still following, and there's nothing hell can do about it. I think that's incredible. Now, I don't want to be the one. (laughs) I don't want to be the one with the affliction. But we all are afflicted at some point or another. There's no way around it. Understanding that faith is that deciding factor that leads us into glory. How we should treasure our faith because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because of the suffering and dying of Jesus Christ. And he died on multiple levels. It was not just the blood coming out of his body. There was taking on sin for us. In front of the Father. There was the public shame. There's so many things that went into his death that are so far beyond us. That we just know enough to accept and be accepted because of it. He was not upset for her at her for touching him. He applauded her. She trusted him. Trusting Jesus Christ is faith. That is the meaning of faith. It's trusting him. Faith is not in the abstract. It is concrete. Faith is not in the power of anything. Faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. It's in him. Who he is. And not in some... Magical force that's out there. His power is him. It is not an additional thing that he has. It is him. The kingdom of God is power. Because that's who God is. 1 Corinthians 4.20 For the kingdom of God is not in word but in power. Sometimes we have to wait to death to see enough of it. But by faith we begin to see it. And so he speaks tenderly to her. This is the only place where Jesus addresses someone as, in the sense of his daughter. He talks about the daughters of Jerusalem, the daughters of Abraham. This is, he says, uh, daughter, your faith, directly to her. Now, he's 31, 32 years old. 
She is likely 25 to 45, somewhere in there, you know, 12 years of, you know, you factor in the 12 years of the issue and you just kind of come up with an age. In other words, he's not old enough to be her father. And yet he speaks to her as a father to a child. You come along and you read, you know your Old Testament, you know your New Testament enough, you say, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This is one of those many signatures of the deity of Christ, that he is God. He is God the Son, and God the Father has no problem with it. So with this word, she's no longer an outcast among her people. Meanwhile, the father of the daughter, he is helpless to interfere. What can he say? Stop it. You know, she's waited 12 years. She can wait another, you know, hour. Oh, that must have been grueling for him. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble teacher any further? If she only just waited, if she just let the Lord get to my house, this wouldn't happen this way. And of course, he, at this point, he, he's, he's, he's done. He's, he's, he's devastated. Why couldn't she wait her turn? John's Gospel, in chapter 11 we read about, again, the perspective of Christ, that he has a different view of things, and he's trying to let us know what that view is about through our New Testaments. In John chapter 11, Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. See, Martha didn't yet learn that Jesus has power over death, even in this life, well, as he lived, that is, as he walked amongst us. And then John eleven thirty two, her sister, not only was Martha the one that said, if you had been here, but Mary. Mary came where Jesus was and saw him. She fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And so in both cases, here with Jairus and then there with Martha and Mary, they're all saying, you know, we were that close to the blessing. Where were you? If you had only done this, God, how many times have you prayed that? If you only did this, things would be so much better, so much different. And so they, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Why trouble the teacher any further? No earnest, needy soul could ever trouble Jesus Christ. No one could ever be a nuisance to him when you come in need. In verse 36, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. Mark says Jesus reacts instantly to what was going on in the father's heart. Look again at verse 36. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, instantly he goes into, uh-uh, just trust me, trust God. That's his response. He said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. His first words were words to strengthen this believer. Now, faith can be one of the most difficult things, but it can be one of the most powerful things also. 
And that's why we seek it. So the psalmist writes, yeah, yeah. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Well, that shadow means it's there. I will fear no evil. For you are with me. And I might momentarily be with you. That's how it is. At some point, the shadow thinks it gets the last say. But it never does amongst the righteous. He just preached on this to her. He had just said to the woman, your faith has made you well. Now he's taking that as his text to Jairus. And he's saying, just believe. Just have faith. Faith is not positive thinking. Faith is not wishful thinking. It is not mindless thinking. It is not superstitious thinking or selfish thinking. It is a willful decision to submit to trusting God as the scripture says, and leaving it right there. Without conditions, without terms. Okay, I'll trust. Imagine if God said, okay, you, you can argue with me about this. You can say, okay, Lord, I'll trust you if, when Abraham was interceding for the Sodomites, he didn't, it wasn't a bargain. He was hoping to just <laughs> get a blessing. But he never made it a condition of his own salvation, his own faith. It's not a deal like that. God made the deal. He said, fine, if you can find ten, <laughs> I'll spare it. So, John chapter 7, verse 38, Jesus said, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If you believe me according to the scripture. Now, we have these intelligent people that come along and tell us don't believe in everything in the Scripture. Believe what they say about the Scripture. And we reject them categorically. And they are after our youth because they sound, they sound so smart to, to some. They don't sound smart to me. I feel like, you know, foghorn when I hear them. You big dummy. Oh, no, that's not foghorn. That's somebody else. And never mind. Let's move on. But I do feel like, you know, who wants to listen to you? The minute you depart, and Chuck Smith, years ago, he was supposed to be on a radio with this person that was part of this uh, Jesus seminar that decided what verses were true and what verses were not. And uh, he, he would have no part of it. He said, I'm not interested in talking to someone who rejects the scripture. Not on these like this. I mean, if you're going to lead somebody to Christ, yes, but not if you're just going to hear the other side tell you how bad the scripture is. He wasn't interested. And I agree with that under those circumstances. It is the fool that has said in his heart that there is no God. And it is the fool that thinks God is not able to protect his word. The Bible has discrepancies that are self-correcting. And it is complete. And it is trustworthy. Because God is so. Verse 37. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Yeah, it's that I got this moment, of course. The Lord is, you know, just he's just moving on with what he's doing. Jairus, is the, he just shot. He's going to trust. He is going to trust at this point. But Jesus is saying, I need witnesses, not spectators. I want those who are in this and not outside of this. And the Bible later portrays Peter as a man of prayer and dedication because he was with Christ and that rubbed off on him. That holiness got into Peter. See, the Jews, according to 
For example, Psalm 55, verse 17, had three times a day that they would pray. And when we come to the book of Acts, we find Peter at each interval praying. In Acts chapter 2, at 9 a.m. he is praying. At noon in Acts chapter 10, and then in Acts chapter 3, there at uh, 3 p.m. he's praying again. Because he had been with Christ. Because Christ had taken him with him. We learn these things from Scripture because we're supposed to respond like Peter did. We get to walk with Christ through the Word, the printed Scripture. Those Jews got to walk with Yahweh through their Old Testament Scripture. It has just been further developed in Christ. Verse 38. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. Now, he's going to make a distinction between the genuine tears and the wailers for pay. These are not ocean-going wailers. <laughs> they are professional. Jeremiah talks about them in, his, in the ninth chapter, I think it is, of Jeremiah. <clears throat> he also mentions that they... I don't know who came up with this idea. You know, there's been a death. We need, it's not enough sorrow. We, we've, got to drama, we've got to ramp this up. We've got to really act like we missed the person. Or like we're all miserable. Uh, I think it was a bad idea. Um, and I'm, I'm glad we don't do it. Uh, anyway, verse 39. And he came in and he said to them, <clears throat> Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead but sleeping. There it is again. This perspective of God that doesn't match my perspective that I've got to learn or suffer the confusion. Yeah, the child's not dead. Yeah, but only he could awaken her. If she is sleeping this kind of a sleep, nobody else can wake her up but him. Without him, it would have been death. Again, John chapter 11, verses 11 and 14. These things he said, and after he said them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. Because nobody else could. Four days later, he gets there, of course. Four days after the death of Lazarus. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Because they said, well, if he's sleeping, he's going you know, to get better. And then he says, no, he's dead. It's a euphemism. Because from my perspective, he's not dead. He is coming back. And he's going to come back because of me. Because that's who I am. I can do this. Here, where he says, the child is not dead but sleeping, that's, that had impact. It was never forgotten. Who could ever forget that if you lived through this moment? I remember when he said it. I didn't know what to think. Some may have said, no way, ridiculers. Others were just anticipating what's going to happen next. For the rest of their lives, they would recall this. Because his view is superior. And if he says she's not dead, they're not dead. And if he says, you're not going to die either. If you're mine, you're not dying. You either believe it or you don't. John 11, verse 26 again. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks this question right on the heels of that same verse. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? Do you live like you believe it? Well, sometimes I do. Sometimes I do a pretty good job, Lord. And you know it because you helped me do it. But then there's those other times. But in the end, you're still there. In the end, you may have been very clumsy about your faith, but it's faith nonetheless. And that counts. It means something with God. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And the Lord granted him his request. In verse 40 now, 
I've lost complete track of time. I think the batteries are dead on the timer. And I think it's the act of God. <laughs> he slew the batteries. Verse 40. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Now, again, they, at this, this point, they had not seen anything like this. And they ridiculed him, not the ones going with him, but the whalers and some of the other people. And they still ridicule him, uh, but his ultimately, uh, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. Verse 41, and he took the child by the hand and said to her, Teliathak Kume, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Now, he's speaking in the Aramaic, or he spoke in the Aramaic, which is believed to have been his principal language uh, amongst the people. It means literally, girl, get up, and that is just what happened. Verse 42, immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. I bet they were. What happened when he was 12? I mean, you've got the woman with the 12 years of, of, of disease. You've got this little girl who's 12 years old, and 12 years of joy and light in the home and, and snuffed out. And when he was 12, he came into knowledge, a fuller knowledge of his identity, of who he was to the father and who the father was to him. We read about it in Luke chapter 2. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. And we know the rest of the story. How did you not know I'd be about my father's business? I don't get He's kind of scolding them, right? 12 years old. I don't get this. How could you not know this? Huh? <laughs> It's a, it's a cute moment because it was no malice in his. We know he's just this innocent child that is deep into faith, what we believe. And is a, he's sort of perplexed. We don't have an answer, do we? They don't say, well, uh, that was their answer. They had no answer. And it is a wonderful part of Scripture. So about the time that this child was born this woman began, began suffering. And this is uh, life. Christian, the Christian has to come face to face with suffering in this life and deal with it from a perspective of faith. It continues in verse 43, but he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given to her to eat. Sort of a life goes on thing. Well, we'll take it from the bottom up. I mean, when he says, you know, she's hungry, give her something to eat. Child wants to eat. That life goes on. But he looked to keep this a low profile. He knew what would happen if it got out of hand. But Matthew adds this report, Matthew 9, 26, and the report of this went out into all the land. These things would speed up his execution because the those his executioners... Uh, of course, detested these kinds of things. Uh, but I'll close with this. Uh, what a future do we want for our children? What future would, what future would my mom and dad, loving the Lord, and would, would, what would they want from me? Uh, the Jews put it in ink, through the Holy Spirit, in Psalm 144, that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as pillars sculptured in palace style. Of course, in relation to God. That's what the, all the Psalms are about. 
They're not humanistic psalms. That my sons would be potted plants. Uh, that's not the idea. That they would thrive. That they would grow stronger and grow upward. Pillars. Uh, holding up truth. Uh, resist the seduction of rebels. You young Christians, you are going to face seducers. They're coming for you. This should not terrify you. This should arm you. You should be saying, and may the Lord use me through it. Acts chapter 2, when, Christ, when Peter is preaching there at Pentecost, and he, leads, he just lays out all these truths before them. He says about the coming of the Spirit, he says, For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off. That would be us. As many as the Lord will call. Of course, the implication is responding to the call. And he continues, it continues this way. Luke adds this. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And you live in a perverse generation. And so if they're going to be perverse, if they will not adhere to Scripture in defiance, we defy back with adherence to the Word. To love, to believe in the Lord, to preach the word, to let the light shine, to be wise as serpents, as harmless as dove, to take up our cross. There's many things that belong to the Christian faith, and we are supposed to master all of them. So the solution to life is Jesus Christ. And that's it. Let's pray. Our Father, Lesson upon lesson, truth upon truth, fact upon fact, and yet still the life must be lived out in the midst of hardship and perplexities and setbacks. But in the end, no disease, no death, no demon, no storm could defeat you. That was true then and it is true now. And it will evermore be true. And may you find us hungry and thirsty for righteousness, that we could be filled. This morning, Lord, if there is someone here that, um, or listening online, watching online, that has never opened their heart to Christ, and as I've been speaking, they have sensed your spirit working in their heart. If you're here this morning and you would like to open your heart to Jesus Christ, if you'd like to begin the walk of adhering to Christ and his word, then it is up to you to make this verbal confession. As Jesus extracted a confession from the woman, he extracts it from those who would be his followers. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I confess my sin. I've broken your commandments. And so I come to you for forgiveness because you offer it. You call me to come to you and I come just as I am a sinner. And I ask you to forgive me. And I ask that from this day forward that not only would you be the one that saves me from judgment for breaking your commandments, but also the one who lords over my life and uses me. And now, Father, if any have made this prayer this morning, may they not hesitate to make their confession public. If they're in the church building, may they come forward and share it with one of the pastors. And if they're listening or watching online, may they call the church 
and asked to speak to one of the pastors and make their confession public. These things we commit to your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.